In May of last year, Google released some interesting information. One of the, the pieces of what they released was a tally of the most searched questions in the past 20 years on their search engine. Well, that caught my attention when I saw the heading, most searched questions. I really wanted to see what people are curious about in modern society. I was surprised. You might be as well. Here they are in order. These are just the top five. How many ounces are in a cup? That's number one. How many ounces in a cup? Now, okay, I get it, but really that is the most searched question over the last 20 years? Wow. Take a look at number two. Where am I? Now, that might sound somewhat existential or philosophical, but it's not. That was really asked by lost people so that Google would find them and help them get back on the track they were supposed to be on. I mean, geographically. It was a map that came back up to say, you are here. This is where you want to be. That's the second most searched question. Number three, how to kiss. Huh. Number four, how to tie a tie. Now, that doesn't surprise me that much because both of my sons would have to ask Google to help with that. The last tie that they had on, either one of them had a clip on it. And so they would have no idea how to tie a tie. They might ask that. And then number five, what time is it? And again, nothing philosophical about that. That is simply, what time is it? Now, Google goes on to say that the reason that that one made the list the way it did is because people are crossing time zones a lot more than they used to, and so they don't know what time it is where they happen to be. I don't know whether that's true or not. It may just be people that are laying in bed and don't want to roll over and look at the clock, so they just verbally ask Google, what time is it? Like I say, it kind of shocked me to see those five things at the top of their list. Because it wasn't that long ago that the most asked questions were considerably deeper than that. Like these, take a look. Where did we come from? Is there life after death? And what's the meaning of life? For the longest time, those three questions penetrated right into the heart of, of most of mankind. People ask those questions on a regular basis, and I might offer that they are still the most asked questions. Maybe not of Google, but they are the most asked questions. The answers are fairly easy to find if we look in the right places. I would say as a preacher, dare I say as a Christian, that I can grab my Bible and answer them pretty easily. Let's do that. We'll take the first one. Where did we come from? Join me in the book of Genesis. If you ever have somebody that asks you this question, here's the place to take them in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Moses writes these words, but they come from God. The Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. 
you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That's where we came from. Man was created by God. Man was created by God for a purpose. But when man was created, when man and woman was created, when mankind was created, God stepped up his declaration about it. Prior to that, in every aspect of creation, God would look back at what he had just created and he would say it was good. But when mankind was created, he said, it is very good. It is very good. That's where we came from. Simple answer right from the Bible. We were created by God. and We were created for a purpose. We'll come back to that. Question number two. Let's go back to those, Chelsea. Here's question number two. Is there life after death? Again, as a preacher and dare I say as a Christian, I can answer that question. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll start in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I love how Paul says that. It is so pointed. If there's no life after death, then even Jesus didn't raise from the dead. He didn't rise from the grave. The tomb is not empty. If that's the case, we are to be pitied more than anyone else because the message that we would bring is one with no hope. But if it is true that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that there is life after death, then we live a life of great hope. So yes, there's life after death. Without it, there is no hope. Easy question to answer. So if you ever have someone struggling with that question, you take them right to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and you show them the answer. It's an easy answer that brings great peace. But then there's this third one. Take a look again. What's the meaning of life? That's a little more difficult. That one is a little harder to answer, even as a preacher or as a Christian. But the Bible speaks to it. Life speaks to it. History and experience speaks to it. But let's just keep following our pattern. We're still in our Bibles. Let's look and see what the Bible has to say to this. Join me in the book of Ephesians. Or actually, I'm sorry. We're going to go to the book of Ecclesiastes first. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's in the Old Testament. If you go to the middle of your Bible, to the book of Psalms, turn right a couple books, you'll run into Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. What's the meaning of life? Solomon is the author of these words, wisest man to ever live. The entire book of Ecclesiastes is dedicated to answering this question. At the end of it, this is what he says, verse 13. 
The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now let's go back. Verse 13, listen again. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. What's the purpose of life? According to Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, fear God and keep his commandments. Now, like I say, the entire book of Ecclesiastes is dedicating to answering this question, what is the meaning of life? That's how he boils it down. Fear God and keep his commandments. Now, we have the authority of God's word to stand on to answer that question, yet people have continued to wonder about it even since Solomon wrote those words. In 1647, a group of people got together to form what we know as the Westminster Catechism. They were trying to answer a whole number of questions. The shorter version of the catechism require, or doesn't require it contains 107 questions and answers. Now, if we were to write the Westminster Catechism online the way we would today and have drop-downs on the website, this would be under frequently asked questions. In the shorter version, 107 of them. But this is the very first one. And remember, this was done in the year 1647. Take a look. What is the chief end of man? Now, Solomon already answered that question, but still, people, even within a faith movement, were saying, what is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of life? What is the purpose of life? Their answer, very short and very to the point, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man, meaning of life, the purpose of life, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now that was answered in 1647, yet here we are 500 and some odd years later. People are still wondering. People are still wondering. No matter what Google says, this is still one of the most popular questions. What's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of life? And it may very well be that the reason people are still wrestling with that, people are still struggling with it, it's because they fail to look in the right place. They failed to look in the macronutrients of life. Let that soak in for just a second. They failed to look in the macronutrients of life. Now, you may be completely unfamiliar with that term, macronutrients. Let me give you a working definition of it just as we get started. Macronutrients are the nutritive components of food that the body needs for energy and to maintain the body's structure and systems. Now, biologically, macronutrients are easy to understand. The macronutrients that we need to sustain our physical life are things like water, protein, carbohydrates, and fat. Those are macronutrients. Even though you may be unfamiliar with the term macronutrient, if you have made it this far in life, you have figured out what it really is about. You have found enough to sustain your life. You are living with macronutrients all the time. Now, that's the biological side of macronutrients. There's a 
group of scholars, particularly in the intellectual and emotional realm, that have explored the macronutrients necessary to survive in those areas. Just like we need them biologically, they say that we need them psychologically. Here are some of the macronutrients that they say we need to survive mentally and emotionally. Take a look, just three of them. Coherence, purpose, and significance. Coherence is simply, according to these experts, an understanding of how everything flows together in life. If we don't understand how everything comes together, confusion follows, depression is not far away, and all kinds of mental illness can come as a result of it. We need an understanding of coherence. But then they talk about purpose. Every person needs to understand purpose. Boiled down, they would say every person needs to have a goal, and if they don't have a goal, there are problems, both intellectually and emotionally. These experts have boiled all of that down into just that type of a simple thing. You need to have purpose, and you need to have significance. Significance, according to the researchers, simply says that you need to understand that your life matters, emotionally and intellectually. We need that as a macronutrient to survive, to make it through life. So we can look at it biologically, and we can look at it psychologically or emotionally, and that sets the table for us to understand that there are spiritual macronutrients necessary for survival as well. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you look at spiritual macronutrients, you will find out that they closely mirror those that are necessary for emotional and intellectual health. Let me show you what I mean. Here are three. Number one, you have to love God. Now take a look at that as we lay it back over the three we just looked at. Coherence was number one. We have to know that everything flows together. Well, when a person really decides to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then it will not be difficult for us to understand that God works for the good in everything. God brings everything together. That's coherence. So now we're starting to see spiritual macronutrients as they come together with psychological macronutrients to give us not just survival, but strong health. The ability not just to survive, but to thrive. So when we understand that because we love God, coherence becomes an easy thing for us. And then we, we jump into this next one. We have to love others. So, Chelsea, lay that slide of the emotional macronutrients back over this. We have to love others. Once we love God, then we love others. And when we love others, we begin to find purpose. There's goals. There are aims in life. I want to make sure that I am reaching out to other people. But then there's this third one, significance. Significance. Is there a spiritual macronutrient that speaks to that? Oh boy, oh boy. Now let's go to the book of Ephesians together. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 10. The 
Apostle Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's your significance. There's your significance. Life is bigger than just me. Life is bigger than just me. My life matters because God created it in such a way that it would. God created me so that I would matter. God created you so that you would matter. Significance, spiritual macronutrient. God has a purpose for your life. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? If emotionally and intellectually we struggle with some of the big questions in life, isn't that good news? God created me so that I would matter. And that boils down to this simple idea of good works. God created me for good works. I am created in Christ Jesus for that purpose. That's great news. That is great news. The Lord has a plan for my life. You want to know how deep that plan goes? We'll pay close attention to some interesting teaching in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Let's look again. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Beforehand. What in the world does that mean? Beforehand. Well, here it is. This is in the original language. Great understanding. It means beforehand. It means before. Before all things. Before you were born, God designed you for good works. Don't believe me. Believe the Bible. Let's go back to the book of Psalms together. Psalm 139, verse 15. Got to love the fact that King David is the one who writes these words. Psalm 139, verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were firm for me, when as yet there was none of them. Beforehand. If you're a note taker, you might want to write in the margin of your Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right next to that passage, so that you can jump back and forth between them and never forget what beforehand means. When you were knit together in your mother's womb, God did it in such a purposeful way that you would have great significance, that your life would matter. What's the meaning of life? The meaning of life is that God created you to matter. He created you for good works. That is imperative for us to understand this. It really is. And in order for us to do that, let me share with you something that may sound contradictory, and I don't mean for it to. So power through it. If it sounds confusing, power through it so that you can really grasp what, what you need to hear. God did not create you because he needed you. God created you because he wanted you. God did not create you because he needed you. God created you because he 
wanted you. There is a huge difference. There is a huge difference. I love the way Samuel Key says this. Take a look. We must grasp this in order to drown in God's love. Many of us are only up to our ankles in it. Some might be up to their knees. Unless we encounter the fact that God did not need us but wanted us, creating us out of his full free will, we'll never experience the marvel of his love. If God didn't need us, then why did he create us? He created us that he might show us his love. Now, I really like the way Samuel breaks this down, because at the end of this statement, he is back to answering one of those primary questions, most asked questions of all mankind. Why? Why do I exist? Why am I here? What's the significance, the meaning of life? Now, hopefully you were reading in such a way that you caught Samuel's answer to it, but if not, I'll call it out for you. Here it is. He created us that he might show us his love. That's, according to Samuel, why God did it, why you're here, why he created you, why he created me, that he might show us his love. The Bible would take it a step further in helping us understand why we were created and what God wants for us in the Gospel of John. Why don't you turn there with me? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth book of the New Testament. Take a look at what Jesus says. John chapter 10, verse 10. Love hearing those pages flip. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, look at how Jesus starts this. He starts by talking about the thief, the devil, Satan. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, what did he come to steal? He came to steal your purpose. What did he come to kill? All meaning of your life. What did he come to destroy? Coherence, the way everything comes together, people's understanding of it. He came to steal, kill, and destroy all of those things to render mankind ineffective and unproductive. He did that, obviously, with all of mankind in mind, but he does it individually to keep all mankind from understanding those things. So that those three questions that we talked about, particularly that last one, what's the meaning of life, will always be elusive. But then Jesus goes on to say, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, and have it abundantly. Now, we were created, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for good works in Christ Jesus, and now all of a sudden we have Christ Jesus telling us that He came that we might have life and have it abundantly. So are those two things connected? Good works and the abundant life? Absolutely. Because if we were created in Christ Jesus for good works and Jesus himself says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly, then the two cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. They should not be separated, but they cannot be separated. Abundant living is this elusive idea today because we, we tend to live on somewhat of a hamster wheel. 
We get up in the morning, we get dressed, we go to work, we do what we need to at work, we come home, maybe we eat dinner, play with the kids, shovel a little bit of snow, watch TV or, or play video games or get on YouTube, whatever the case might be, finish out the end of our day, go to bed and get up tomorrow and do it again. Doesn't sound very abundant, does it? And then we do it again, and then we do it again. Living for the weekend or maybe a vacation where we can try to live in some abundance. But really, our life isn't defined that way, at least not the way we see it on the surface. Yet Jesus would say, I came that they would have life and have it abundantly. When we figure out the abundant life, certain things begin to click for us. When we figure out the abundant life, it allows us to grasp some things that without it just seem elusive to us. In fact, once we embrace the abundant life and how God wants us to experience it, there are some key things that really become evident to us. Here, let me show you some of them. We'll just put them up on the screen. Number one, when you experience the abundant life, then you will be able to wrap your mind around this. No matter what, you weren't an accident. You were created on purpose. Number two, you are of great value. Number three, you are God's workmanship. Number four, he is the artist that created you. Number five, he wanted you to exist. Abundant living helps us accept those things. Abundant living pushes the thief away from us so that we can embrace this. He will no longer steal those things from us. He will not kill that truth within us. He will not destroy that within all of mankind because we are embracing the abundant life that we have in Christ Jesus. And when we embrace it and understand that we were created in Him for good works, not because He needed us, but because He wanted us, and He wants us to experience this, then number six really begins to make sense to us. Here it is. When you realize your purpose, amazing things happen. Amazing things happen. That's God's design. That's God's plan. Now again, I don't want you to believe me. I want you to believe the Bible. So let me show you 120 people that figured it out. I'm going to show you 120 people in Scripture real fast. I mean, we only have about six minutes left in this message. So we're going to run through 120 people really, really fast. Let's start in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Now there's some names you're familiar with. There's some names that maybe you haven't heard before, but probably if you've studied the Bible much or been in church much, you've heard those names. That's the list of the disciples. Now let's pick up verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. So we have some names we're familiar with, some names that we have heard before, but now all of a sudden we have a number greater than those names. That number is 120. My friends, that was the first church. 
the very first New Testament church. The church did not exist until Jesus ascended into heaven. When Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, the church began, and there it is, 120 people. Roughly 120 people, the Bible says. Luke doesn't give us the exact number. He just says it was roughly 120. And there are some names that you know within that 120 and some names that you would never hear. This side of heaven will never know who the full 120 was, but that was the first church. You want to know what's staggering to me about that? It's the fact that somewhere north of 9,000 people were fed by Jesus in the Gospels. Number of people were healed by Jesus. Maybe they were included in that 120, we don't know. But 9,000 people were fed by Jesus. 9,000 people. But after the crucifixion, all the political unrest, everything that went with that, the church began with 120. 120. That's kind of sad. But then it's not. Because those 120 people understood the abundant life. Those 120 people understood that they were created in Christ Jesus for good works. They understood that once they embraced the abundant life, amazing things would happen. You know what happened very rapidly? They went from 120 to 3,120 really fast. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. Peter, the fisherman, it is imperative that you understand that. Peter, the fisherman, preached a powerful message on the southern steps of the temple. The Holy Spirit had come to rest on him, and oh, man alive, something amazing happened. At the end of his message, verse 37 of chapter 2, this is what we read. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We just jumped from 120 to 3,120. That's pretty cool because those 120 realized that they were created not because God needed them, but God wanted them. They understood the abundant life and they had waited for the Holy Spirit to come and do something through them. And when the Holy Spirit did something through them, this is what happened. Something amazing happened. They jumped from 120 to over 3,000. Here's a cool little side note for you. I'd always wondered how 3,000 people were baptized because my limited perspective was baptism one at a time. So how in the world 3,000? Boy, they were late to lunch. I mean, that's, that's what goes through my mind. But that isn't what took place at all. All around the Temple Mount, there are things called mikvahs, about 60 of them. They're baptistries. So 60 people that had already been baptized into Christ, got down into the baptistries, and all these people came and joined them, and they started baptizing them 60 at a time. Wow! Wow! I'm really hoping in heaven, it's just Phil's hope, that the Lord will allow me to look back on that and see it. That'll be cool. And I also, because I'm a preacher, I want to hear the rest of Peter's sermon, because it says, and with many other words, Every preacher I've ever known loves that sentence in in Scripture. And with many other words, 
There are a lot more words in that sermon. But it doesn't end there. Those 120 people, well, they understood something about what the abundant life really meant. So listen to this. Verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved, and 3,000 became 4,000. 4,000 became 5,000. 5,000 became 6,000. And the church grew exponentially because they were all together. Back up to verse 45 and listen to this. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Good works. Good works. Verse 46 tells us where those good works came from. They had glad hearts. They had glad hearts. They were thrilled by what Jesus had brought to their life. They had glad hearts. And from their glad hearts grew this generosity. So much so that the Bible says they were just eating their food with glad and generous hearts. It bled over to every small thing in their life. Glad and generous hearts. And other people were moved by it and touched by it. And they became believers because of it. Oh, when we embrace the abundant life that the Lord has for us, when we understand that we were created for good works, remarkable things, amazing things, miraculous things happen. They happen. And we are designed to live in those, created to live in those. It's interesting as we go on in the book of Acts, we see this whole thing continuing. By the time you get to chapter 4, verse 32, this is what we read. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. By this point, well over the 3,000. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed, distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levi, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. They were all together. They were all together, and no one had need. Because those original 120 people understood what it meant to be created by God, not for need but by want, so that God could watch His church grow and expand and become this amazing thing. And every one of them knew that they had been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that they might live the abundant life that Jesus wanted them to have. And look what happened. Wow. Wow. Now, it's an easy thing for us. When we go back to verse 46, to accept that they were glad because of what Jesus had done for them. We are too. We're glad because Jesus saved us. 
But then the Bible says that they were eating their meals with generous hearts as well. It's easy for us to take that word generous and combine it to John chapter 10, verse 10, and and understand abundance in light of simple finances. Simple finances. And if we were created in Christ Jesus for good works and, and we are to live an abundant life in Christ, then in modern Christianity, we boil generosity down to simply saying that we will give to other people out of our financial abundance. And in the United States of America, that tends to be the only way that we ever measure it. But my friends, Jesus didn't say, I came that they might have life and an abundance of money. He said, I came that they might have life abundantly. And if we are created for good works, then we are to give back to God out of our abundant life. Or as I might write it, like this. No, back up one, Chelsea. Life, the abundant life. Each one of those letters having a deeper meaning like these, labor, influence, finances, and experiences. For the next four weeks, I want to show you what generosity out of that type of life, L-I-F-E, looks like. We're going to do it almost as if each one is the piece of a puzzle, and when we bring it together, it will show us the abundant life that Jesus had for us. But it all begins in understanding that we were created for good works, that we might live an abundant life. And as we live it, our life will matter and have great significance unto the growing of the kingdom of God. Because that was God's purpose. When all four of those things come together, you have figured out something that is elusive to many people. What is the meaning of life? It is the abundance that comes through Jesus Christ that we were created for that we were created to give away out of a generous and glad heart. I hope you'll be here for these four weeks. This is going to be fun. As we break each one of these down and we look at them in their own light, it's going to be fun. And I hope it'll answer questions for you and motivate you and stir your soul to live the way the Lord wants you to. I'll leave you simply with this from the Westminster Catechism, again, written in 1647, but this is the first of 107 questions. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? Take a look again at their answer. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That requires us to live the abundant life that Jesus came to offer us with glad and generous hearts. Stand and pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, I'm, I'm so happy that you created us because you wanted us. I'm so happy, Father, that means not one of us is an accident. We are created on purpose by you, the master artist. Thank you for designing us the way you did. But Father, more than that, thank you for saving us. Thank you for coming that we might have more than just life that we might have more than just years on this earth where we live and we die and that's all there is thank you for coming father 
that we might have eternity and a purpose within it. Oh, I pray you'll help us find it. And I know, Father, that in order for us to find it, we have to find you first. So I'm asking specifically for those that don't know you, that today they will. And I pray that they'll find great purpose in you. Asking that in Jesus' name. Amen.